1: Slow Burn Media, an evergreen podcast, presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless.
0: 17 years ago, Brianna Maitland went missing in Vermont. Today, her family and detectives are still searching for answers. But as nbc 5 Zuri Hoffman explains, the intentions surrounding cases like this one can sometimes make them more difficult to solve.
2: Around the anniversary of her disappearance. Well,
0: There's a day goes by that I don't think about her.
2: Bruce Maitland is still holding out hope he'll find his daughter. We also spoke with him at his Pennsylvania home a few years back.
0: There's Brianna there again.
2: It's now been nearly two decades since his then 17 year old daughter. Brianna Maitland was last seen leaving the Black Lantern Inn in Montgomery, Vermont, where she worked. Her car was later found backed into an abandoned barn. 17 years later, police still don't know what happened to her. My ultimate goal is to be able to bring some closure. Vermont State Police Detective Angela Baker has been the lead detective on the case for the past four years. What makes this case so difficult to solve? The rumor mill is just alive and well with this case. She also says there's very little evidence to go on. There had to have been foul play. The mystery has received a lot of attention. You go on the internet, you search Brianna Maitland. Um, just the information that comes up is just an obscene amount of information. And that means there's a lot for Baker to sift through.
0: Anyone can write a blog, and anyone can write information about this case.
2: Assistant Professor of Cybersecurity at Champlain College says the veracity of information on the internet can often be used as a tool for investigators, but it can sometimes make it more challenging to determine fact from fiction. He says certain algorithms can help, but still these things take time. Can I plug in keywords that only someone
0: who was pretty intimate with what was going on? Would know about or they state made a statement about something that was not made public.
2: Baker says despite the attention surrounding this case, she receives new leads every day and follows up on each one of them. She's urging anyone with information to come forward. Mary Shotwell Little. In 1965, Little, a bank secretary, vanished into the night outside Lenox Square, which was then a small open-air shopping center. Her last goodbye was to a friend following dinner and shopping. Little's car was later found with blood smears on the front seats. Mary Shotwell Little is literally the largest manhunt in Atlanta history. Her case file was larger with the FBI than the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. So just let that marinate for a minute.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcasts, and Killer Podcast production. This week, I am joined by an author and a fellow true crime podcaster, as well as a member of the Evergreen family, and that is one Amy Baker, the host of "She Goes by Jane." Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, how are (laughs) you?
0: I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm doing fantastic. Uh, The show seems to be doing well, and looks like you're already off to a good start. Got seven episodes in the bank, or? Something along those lines, and how's it been going?
0: It's been going really well. We've been enjoying sharing stories about missing and unidentified women and you know, shining light on like kind of forgotten stories.
1: My tagline's always been a voice for the voiceless, and I feel like that's exactly what you're doing in your show. And what are some of the reasons that you decided to get into this line of podcasting.
0: I actually started off as a as a writer and a poet who had been writing true crime poetry, which is like its own little mini world. And I wrote a book of poetry on missing and unidentified women, which then became a documentary film. Uh, my co-host, Vanessa Ciccarelli, who's a documentary filmmaker, she and I were looking for ways to like keep telling stories and the stories that we didn't get to share in the film, the stories that I didn't get to cover in the book. And so we were like, you know, a podcast is the perfect format for that kind of storytelling.
1: I actually agree with you 100% because that is how I sort of uh, evolved into podcasting. I worked in the world of television news and never felt like you could get a real solid feel for a case in a two-minute segment on the news or even the five-minute expose or investigation. And right. with podcasting, it's been able to give us this platform where we can bring attention to cases that kind of have fallen through the cracks. And what are some of the cases that you guys are uh, trying to focus on?
0: Yeah, so so far this season we've covered um, Brianna Maitland, who's been missing since from Vermont since two thousand and four. Um, her
1: case is super interesting. Like, t- tell me a little bit mm-hmm. about uh, about her case. I know like the name really rings a bell because she's been on. They've covered her case on Dateline, and everybody who's right. listened to true crime podcasts watches Dateline That's or watch Dateline or knows yeah. or knows the name. So. Yeah. Like, just give a little refresher on um, on what actually happened to her in 2004.
0: She was a teenager and, you know, she had decided to move out of her parents' home in Vermont and was living with a friend. And she went to work one night and told her friend in a note, like, I'm going to be home, you know, soon. And she worked at a dishwasher, as a dishwasher at the Black Lantern Inn in Vermont. And, you know within an hour of her leaving work, people started to see her car kind of backed into a barn, you know, off this rural road. And they keep seeing it kind of through the night. And, you know, that's kind of the last moments of people kind of recognizing, you know, where she was. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of theories about her case. And I know that there are or people burning up forums everywhere talking about it. Um, But, you know, nothing's been resolved since 2004.
1: So there has been no evidence, nothing other than I did. Didn't I read that they did find DNA evidence recently or in the last couple of years that was found near her vehicle that they had collected?
0: Yeah. So, you know, with, with, DNA technology, and now with investigative genetic genealogy, like we are in a new era of solving these kinds of crimes, right? And so Authorum Labs, you know, they um, just came out within the last year with like DNA information about, you know, like they know who the DNA belongs to. um, But, you know, police have not released any information and they made clear like, oh, well, you know, That doesn't mean it's like from a suspect. So we're kind of just waiting for more information to come out.
1: That's always one of those slippery slopes when you get into the DNA and, well, it was found near the vehicle. And it's, yeah, it definitely leaves you with a little bit of a question as far as was this person actually associated with the disappearance. And her case is tragic because, you know, I do know that they mentioned her in, uh, what was it, the Maura Murray documentary or the Maura Murray series, and, you know, that was another case of just another unsolved disappearance, and yeah, what's the deal with people just disappearing in the East Coast? What's up with that?
0: Yeah, I was... The Northeast. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I live in the Northeast. It's... (laughs) It's like but, the you know,
1: Northern Bermuda Triangle up there or something. What's going on?
0: I mean, it kind of is. Um, <laughs> you know, like I was in college when Maura Murray and Brianna m- went missing and they went missing a month from each other. And it's like first in New Hampshire, then in Vermont. And I'm like living in upstate New York, like, you know. What is happening? And I think that was the case for a lot of people living up here, which is why like, I knew I wanted to write a poem specifically for her.
1: How did this poem book come about? You said that it's a true crime poetry book. And yeah. you said in our pre-talk that you had 50 poems. And how did you go about picking those 50, writing those 50, or you know, go about choosing which victims to talk about?
0: Oh, that, that is a layered question, Phil. So I was living in Phoenix, Arizona in, um, like, you know, I lived there from 2005 to 2008 and I was in a master's program for fiction writing and I came across a news story about this unidentified young woman who had, um, nine years prior, been thrown or had jumped from a vehicle that was speeding down the highway, leaving Phoenix. And, you know, people came to her aid right away, but she didn't have any identification on her and she ended up passing away two days later. And so I'm sitting in Phoenix and I'm reading this story, you know, nine years later. And I was like, what? what is this story? Why haven't I heard about her before? Like, what has it been happening? And, you know, that kind of moment is the first moment I really kind of dove into, like, this world of true crime.
1: There's always something there, you know, a seed that gets planted that eventually evolves into something, and that's what evolved into the book. And so you've now transferred the book into the world of podcasting. So, that is kind of a a nice and interesting transition. So, you do involve poetry within each episode. So, give me a little bit of an idea of how that works.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, true crime poetry, like I'm not the inventor of, um, but it's existed for, you know, such a long time. But, you know, it for me, it was like a way to use my skills as a writer to honor these women and call attention to their stories. And so what we do in our episodes is like we include a poem honoring the woman that we talked about during the episode, and we get a well-known or celebrity guest to read the poem at the end of the episode. So there's this moment of kind of contemplation and thinking about who we've been talking about for the entirety of the episode.
1: That's a pretty unique way of honoring the victim. I think it was very... Very cool. I thought it was just a very cool way of doing it. And how did you go about getting the guests as far as the readers go?
0: Right. I mean, like we have such an amazing roster of guests. We've had um, Erica Wong, a Broadway actress. We've had um, Raven Goodwin, who was just on um, the last few weeks. And we've like have coming up like Lauren Ash and Kathy and Jimmy. And like, so really like what we've just done is just reached out to people and asked, which seems like so simplistic.
1: (laughs) It's amazing. what, What will happen if you just put yourself out there and ask, Hey, do you mind? And right. It's shocking how many people will just say, sure.
0: Yeah. And so many people have said yes. And it's pretty exciting. Um, To add their voices so that there's kind of like this collective voice of people who are trying to call attention to these stories.
1: So what are some of the other cases? I know that you've got seven episodes. What are some of the ones that have stood out to you as far as being, I don't know, more interesting or more solvable than others?
0: Right. We just released a two part series on um, Girly Chu, or she's also known as um, Girly Chu Hassenkoft, which was her husband's name. Like, we know she was murdered. Her husband and his mistress were convicted of her murder. And I just feel like that's easily solvable. Like, if he or she would just say where she is, right? Like, just say it. Or for Brianna, like, I think that's a story where it's like, just someone needs to come forward. Like, it's a small town. People know, like, just someone needs to do it. It's
1: so interesting when you look at these cases with these small towns, and it is really down to somebody knowing something. And just, I don't know if it's the lack of Willingness to come forward because they're afraid or maybe they'll get in trouble or they'll be somehow implicated. I think we need to find an easier way for people to come forward and it's, it, it or make it just, because you can do it anonymously. It's not like it's right. impossible to come forward and say, I think it's this person. I think it's, and this, this is my reasons. Nobody has to know who you are. I mean, Crime Stoppers is a reason for there's a reason why these are exactly. anonymous tips. I just don't understand why and how something like a Brianna Maitland case can go unsolved for so long. I know that the case that I am most passionate about is the Amy Maholovic case, and that is going mm-hmm. on it's 34 years this October 27th, which is insane to think about. And that case still remains unsolved. And that case is insane because the guy called her at her home, lured her to a plaza. He set up a date to abduct her. I've never heard of any other situation like that. And the further you get away from these cases, the longer it goes, the, just the less and less likely it is to be solved. And like the one case that you had, was it the show little from 1965?
0: mm yeah, Mary Shotwell Little.
1: Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah. And that is another case that is just very, very wild. And right. what are your thoughts on that case?
0: I mean, so Mary Shotwell Little, basically she's she was in all the newspapers in 1965, like throughout, particularly the Southeast, because she was billed as like the, like the missing bride or the missing newlywed, right? Cause she had just gotten married six weeks before her disappearance and she had, you know, her husband was out of town. She had gone out to dinner with a friend and shopping. She went grocery shopping cause she was going to host a dinner party. And the next day she doesn't show up for work. And, You know, they find her car in the parking lot and her groceries are still in the back seat, but there's blood in the front of the car. They, her, her like stockings, her underwear are in the car. Oh no. And she's not there. And, you know, this is a case where like they made some assumptions early on because the car had only been driven 40 miles. So from the time that her husband left, like they were documenting, like, you know, keeping track of their mileage on the car. It was a new car. So they like calculated out, there's all these calculations happening, like how many miles was it from home to work every day. And so they subtracted all that out and discovered that there was like a missing 40 miles on the car. So they make this assumption early on that she must be in a twenty-mile radius. So to drive the car away and back to the parking lot.
1: Oh, just a small twenty-mile radius. That's that's right. Very easy to search. Completely. <laughs> yeah. No, and, no problem. You know, Nineteen sixty-five. No we got it. We got it. Don't worry. Yeah. Just give me a couple dogs. Yeah. Uh, we just need some volunteers. We'll 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 get this twenty miles searched because. Yeah. No. Nah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it was literally that it was dogs. It was like asking hikers, like, have you seen her? It was like, look in your sheds, right? Like check, check your backyard. You know, meanwhile, what they discover like a month later is that her credit card was used the night she disappeared two states away. So she wasn't even in that 20 mile radius. She was States away, and they were not considering that as a possibility.
1: And how long was it before they figured that out?
0: It was a month. Oh, a my month, God. yeah.
1: Yeah, because you got to yeah. wait for the statement.
0: Right. Because back wow. then it was like literal, like paper statements. And <sighs> they went and talked to the gas station attendant at the gas station it was used, and he had seen her that night in a car with a man. She was bloody when he saw her. But he decided it was a domestic dispute between a husband and a wife, and he didn't want to get involved.
1: And it's 1965, and gosh, you know, I would hope people... You don't want anybody to get involved in a domestic violence dispute. You call the authorities. But again, this is 1965, Nine one one's not even really it not even a thing, so no. the chances of being able to track this guy down. I just think it's it's disturbing to think that this guy was able to basically kidnap this woman and be seen with her two states away, and that there wasn't any resolution in this case. No. I mean, it's yeah. again one of those we talked about it before the show. What happens when there is no Answer and there's no body mm-hmm. and there's no other, nothing but a left car and blood smears and one eyewitness and again we all know eyewitness testimony is garbage so mm-hmm. take it take it with a grain of salt uh, I don't remember who I saw yesterday
0: right
1: <laughs> I mean right. I know that when I talk to you know the authorities and you know I had a police chief tell me one time he's like. You bump into somebody at the mall, do you think about what they look like the next day? I you just you know, if you see somebody on the news, you're gonna be like, that's the guy I ran. It's just so shocking how poor of a job we are at remembering things. (laughs) And I know (laughs) it's it's sad to think that there's so many people that are in jail. Because of eyewitness testimony and that exactly is, or just strictly eyewitness testimony. I get it if you're caught red-handed and you literally have blood on your hands and you're you're caught at right. the scene of the crime. If you're relying on that, it's a very weak case in my mind. And that's another reason why I think some of these like sketches that come out after these events and it's like, look for this guy and you know, look at the Delphi case. Did the guy really look like the guy? I mean, kind of the guy kind of looked like the guy, but I don't, I don't know. I just think it's hard for people to remember what the heck they saw. At least I think in the Delphi case, they used some like bio, you know, examinations basically because they had the videotape so they could make right, some right. idea of what the person looked like. But to just ask somebody what they think somebody looked like,
0: Yeah. You know, there was in this past week, there was a a dean of a college, a retired dean in Vermont who was murdered on a hiking trail and they just released the police sketch. And I was like, "I, I couldn't tell you who that person is. Like that doesn't even look like a human. Like that's a really bad drawing. I don't know what to tell you. Like, I don't think I could identify anyone from that sketch ever.
1: Some sketches I've seen are just so bad, and i'm I'm just like, "Who Great. did they bring in to do this and I again back to the Amy Mahalovic sketch, mm-hmm. both people that I interviewed that are or were involved heavily in the post investigation you know after her body was found. this was based off of two kids' testimony you know not testimony but mm-hmm. their their own police re- police report and accounts yeah. and I'm like, listen. Can we really trust two 10-year-olds? And he's like, listen, uh, you know, that sketch, it just looks like looks like everybody. I mean, I honestly, I look at the sketch and I'll, you know, put a link in the show notes if people don't know this sketch, but like it literally looks like anybody's dad from 1989. It has the dad haircut. The right. the father of the girl who was unfortunately kidnapped and later killed said, you know, he made a joke about looking like john denver he's like you just can't put too much stock in these photos and and if that's what is gonna lead to somebody that's great but i think we we're better off with the profiles the profiling the behavioral stuff obviously the dna is now is now the gold standard but even dna as we've come to know that's a tricky one too it's not always there,
0: right? Right, and you know, they're, like after so much time has passed, or they didn't preserve things in the way that would be necessary for today.
1: I think eighty six um, was the first year they used DNA in a case, and it wasn't like widely used. I think, but I think it was the mid eighties that when it came something where people started saving more evidence for the hopes of the future. And I think they actually started doing that in the seventies, but you collect evidence and then you hope for science but at least they were forward thinking enough back then to say well maybe one day because the advancements we've had in our lifetime are unimaginable compared to right. what they had at their disposal in 1965 even in 2004 with Brianna Maitland and in 1989 with Amy Maholovic it's right. just the tools have changed and the tools have improved where we can now say well, this DNA matches something that we found at the scene. Exactly. I have the same thing going on with the Amy Mihaljevic case. They, found, uh, they finally tested a blanket and a curtain, and they found dog DNA on it that matched or was similar to the family dog. But then just in the last couple of years, they found out that Amy's hair was also on the blanket and, the, and this uh, curtain. So it confirms what they've already thought. That this was used as a way to transport the body. But again, they don't have like CODIS DNA.
0: Right. And that's what everybody wants. Right. And they're like, you know, kudos to investigators who have like kept this evidence in the hopes that science will catch up in the future. You know, like we have an upcoming episode that you know, my co-host, my co-host is not a true crime girly at all. Like, so she's just continuously shocked by everything.
1: It's good to have that. You, you don't want to both be on the jaded side of life because we both yeah. know how things, how dark things can get. And right, you got to have a little bit of, you know,
0: right. <laughs> right. can't
1: be all doom and gloom. Like I- <laughs>
0: I mentioned the BTK killer to her and she was like the Bermuda Triangle. I was like, no, <laughs> that's not, no, that's not what that stands for. That's not, that's not it.
1: One of these days, Carrie Rossman is actually going to be on the show. So that will be, oh, wonderful. that will be interesting. But that is Bind, Torture, Kill, uh, Vanessa. Yes. <laughs> and uh... Yes, not
0: not the Bermuda Triangle killer. killer.
1: <laughs> Which would be an no. interesting name for the Bermuda Triangle.
0: Right. Maybe we would finally have some Bermuda Triangle answers. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's
1: it's but- sw- it's Swamp Gas. It's <laughs> uh it's <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think they've debunked the, the whole Bermuda Triangle, but
0: Okay, you know don't Don't crush my my childhood love of the Bermuda Triangle, Bill. I get it.
1: The Time Life book thing was amazing. I get it. And but you now live in your own Bermuda Triangle, but it's in the Northeast. (laughs)
0: It's the Northeast. It's
1: the Northeast. So we have to come up with a nifty name for that. And so I know. Yeah. I mean, I used to work. I used to be a bartender in what they called the Viagra Triangle.
0: completely different triangle
1: hey you know it's uh again like I said you got to have some levity when you talk about all this stuff but it exactly it always is interesting when you start to go a little bit deeper into these cases and when you do find out that it's just there isn't that much information to go on right and you were able to do a two-parter so there's a lot of information there yeah. We've talked about this before. What happens when the facts don't, or when the facts don't line up with what your narrative is? Because this is what we just discussed at the Chagrin Falls Film Festival, which was hosted by Evergreen or sponsored by Evergreen, I should say. But it was definitely a question on the panel of whether or not you try to squeeze some suspense into telling of the story. And I said no, but what are your thoughts?
0: I am also team no. I think that the problem is that we want these stories to kind of be tied up in a neat little bow. And then, you know, there's some kind of resolution or confirmation of some part. I think that's a lot of why we kind of veer towards more wanting to hear about the killer story particularly when they've been arrested, they've been convicted, there's a neat resolution there. And we get kind of a feeling of safety and, you know, just like kind of like some bizarre comfort out of it. But like sometimes there just aren't those answers. And the story really is that we are still on a quest to find answers. And so sometimes I think, you know, responsible storytelling in the true crime space is to actually just address those things. Like we just covered the story of an unidentified living person um her she's known as like honolulu jane doe she's sometimes known as pansy or uh she was found alive in hawaii and she was unable to give her name and she had no identification on her
1: what year is this happening
0: this was 2004 as well and she ended up passing away a few years later in the 2000s right so i think we want some sort of resolution there that we found out who her family was or we found out who she is or that she has some sort of narrative or story to her but she's she was literally unable to give any story of her life right because she had dementia, complicated by schizophrenia. The story really is just that. And so in the episode, we actually ended up talking about her story, but also shining light on the concept of unidentified living people. Like, how does that happen?
1: That's a very good way of filling in the blanks, is to expand on the topic. And I think a lot of shows could... Take a page out of that and use that to instead of using speculation and I just don't like shows that speculate too much because I agree if you're doing it with cases that are one unsolved, that means there's an open investigation. The new line every day that you hear from from police is this was never a cold case. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it's like somehow yeah. the word cold case has taken on this bad moniker. It makes the cops feel like they haven't been doing their job. So they just call it an open investigation. Well, let's be real about it. Is it a cold case? Because you just, I mean, you're you not putting feet on the ground every day for every single right. one of these cases. So just accept the fact that it's a, been a cold case it's not a bad thing. Things do go cold. It's a terminology that we are all 100% familiar with, but don't try to tell us as journalists and reporters that this has never been a cold case. Well, okay. How about the case from that just gets solved because you just decided to test something? Well, doesn't mean you were testing it every year for the last 40 years. That's like Two different generations, three to four different generations of police officers that are going through there. This isn't happening like that. I think people need to just understand it's a slow process and all these, you know, advancements in technology are great, but it's still not. There's never going to be, like you said, not a neat little bow tied around Mm -hmm. the case because one, there's always irreparable damage done to. Countless numbers of families who are um, impacted by it, the families of the victim, obviously, the person who discovered the bodies, traumatized for life, the people that investigated the case sticks with them forever. If it goes unsolved, these are some of the things that we don't think about, but it's collateral damage is what it really is. Exactly. And. Kudos to, like, taking your word, kudos to the cops that do stick to that I'm going to work this case until I die mentality. Because you look at some of the police officers in the Golden State Killer case, that was kind of their methodology was like, I'm working this thing. I don't don't care. And again, Michelle McNamara, we can give her a lot of props for keeping that case. In the spotlight as well, tragically, uh, RIP. If you've never read the book, people, I'm sure you have, but it's I one guess, of the best. Yeah. And in the past 10 years, I'd say. Um, but it's definitely interesting to see how uh, D'Angelo got around and, but how he used the interstates and just would go from so far to so, you know, 50, 60 miles out of his way to go kill and do these horrible crimes it kind of it's a little bit of a reminder of like Ted Bundy and how Bundy used to go from Utah to Colorado that's where I live and right. I was just in Glenwood Springs a couple weeks ago and that's the, the jail where he escaped and ended up running to Florida where he eventually met his maker and unfortunately before he, he was able to commit a few more serious crimes and, mm-hmm. but he paid his, his dues and, uh, sat in the electric chair. So I guess right. there's that.
0: What I think is interesting is like these stories of people, and that, that includes you, like sticking with these stories and like wanting to tell them and, and keeping at it to keep them in the, the spotlight, right? You know, like the Golden State Killer case, like that takes someone to like, say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to like call attention to this story. You know, and I think like we have an upcoming episode um, about the unidentified woman who was known as Buckskin Girl for the longest time and was identified as um, Marcia Sosman King. Right. And, you know, the the cop who ends up working her case like was born after she disappeared. So it's generations of people who are kind of carrying these these stories with them right and like thank goodness they kept the evidence of her case they kept the jacket that she was known for they kept all that so that they could go back and use new technologies on it and you know I think it's like those stories of people who continue on and it's frustrating because sometimes that process is slow
1: it's very slow and you're right it is frustrating but if you have enough people that are interested in seeing resolution in the case, especially in some of these cases where communities are still under the shadow of this crime, they want resolution just as much as the family does. You know, there's never going to be closure for the family. That's that's a again, we've talked about it before on the show. It's a it's a make believe fairy tale ending. Right. It's it's something that's similar to that, but it's not closure, because that family is still without their loved one. And I don't know if it brings all that much relief when they do find out who it was, unless it's somebody that was close to the family. But if it's just some random person, I don't know. I mean, I think there will always be some sense of, oh, I'm glad they finally got that person. But A lot of these families, it's like I said, it's irreparable damage. You can't put Humpty Dumpty back together. If your child's been killed, or your sister, or your brother, good luck trying to repair your faith in humanity.
0: Yeah. And I think like that's part of that idea of, you know, like the neat bow tying. All right. Is like, Obviously, once you know, that's the closure. But you're right. Like, all these families are still left with so much trauma and unanswered questions, their loved ones not with them. And it's not you've closed the book or anything. Like, that's a lifelong trauma to these families, to the people involved in the case.
1: It seriously is. And I don't think it gets enough attention. I think we as storytellers and as journalists, We tell the story and I think a lot of times once there is that resolution, if somebody is caught, the attention towards the family that lost their loved one goes away. Mm -hmm. And I mean, maybe that's good for the family because then they can try to mend some of those cracks, but you're never going to be whole again. I think we need to do a better job as podcasters as journalists as investigators in checking back in on the families and making sure that their their lives aren't ruined forever I mean it's not to say that they can solve anything or make anything better but I think of Margaret Mihaljevic and how she just never got over it and she died in 2001 just you know 11 years after her body Amy's body was found and she just died of a broken heart, and it's just mm-hmm. so tragic. I can't get past the fact that some of these families don't have any answers. Like I think about the Atlantic City Four. Have you, mm-hmm. you know, the Eastbound Strangler? They've they've coined a name for him, and I, right, I'm right, I'm interested right. to see if he's these cases are connected to the Gilgo Beach murder suspect because of the similarities and into they were all basically found in the same area about 50 feet away from each other behind the golden key motel and that was a case that i started on pretty early on and Mm -hmm. i just remember it i remember it happening i remember being just super weird all the girls were bound it was clearly a the same killer And they were all sex workers or drug users. Those are the cases that don't get jacked for attention because of the fact that they are considered lower in society, which is such a bunch of crap. I mean, you look at the police chief in Gilgo. That's the reason why it didn't get solved for so long is because he was a sex pest himself. I mean, he was frequenting sex workers. He was considered possibly a suspect for a while. I remember had Maggie Freeling on, she was thinking that he might be the guy and you know, now he's going to jail and it's, you know, he went to jail at one point because he beat up a guy who stole his sex toys. Like what what kind of police chief is this? And he beat him with his bag of sex toys. And I mean, (laughs) this is the kind of stuff that you don't see when you're reporting on cases until you step back years later and go, oh, shit, we dropped the ball because jack wagon over there is being a jack wagon and screwing up everything. Who knows how quickly they could have solved that case, especially with the fact that he appears to have stopped.
0: Right. Right.
1: What makes you stop? I don't know.
0: Yeah. You know, I I think it's interesting. I was like working on a, a, a separate project, but you know, like I, and I was meeting with someone to talk about getting that project off the ground. And, and like, I mentioned the importance of including sex workers stories because they're so often overlooked both, you know, by the media, by people, by by policing agencies, right? And that person was like, we don't need to get political here. And I was like, I don't think it's political to like say that sex workers deserve safety and not to be murdered. They, they are human beings.
1: It shouldn't be marginalized like it is. It is right. the oldest business in the world. And it's something that women should... One, I just don't feel like it should be, I, I don't want to say, again, maybe this is political. So I don't know if it's against the law. It should, <laughs> should be against the law or whatever. But like a woman should have the right to choose whatever she wants to do. I mean, that's just my belief in, in all of regards. Like I just don't think anybody should tell anybody within reason what to do with their bodies or their lives. I mean, if you are down on your luck and that's what you need to do, then... Who am I to say that that's wrong and immoral or unethical or, you know, screw, screw morals and ethics. Like, it's not that it's the story of this woman who was brutally raped and murdered or murdered and dismembered. These things are terrible. She's still a person.
0: Exactly. Doesn't make a difference. She still has family. She still has people who care about her she is important. And, and like, if we erase those stories, we are not actually telling like the true story of like, particularly violence against women in America. And that erasure, you know, presents like a different view of what that looks like. It is not just like, you know, suburban middle-class young women who are going missing. And when we get rid of all of those other stories, like that's the story we end up telling.
1: I agree 100%. I think it's very difficult for the news in this country to get off the pretty suburban girl goes missing stranger abduction, which rarely ever happens. Uh, the But like the Elizabeth Smarts, the John JonBenet's, the... Uh, just the Gabby Petitos you know these names because they get plastered over the airways because they're pretty pretty blonde girls we have a problem with that as far as what we focus on when you need we need to focus on all victims not just the right. ones that have money to keep the story in the spotlight
0: right so like earlier bill you asked like how do I pick the stories that we're going to tell right and I I do think it's important to hear those stories of like Gabby Petito and John Bonet. Agreed. Like those are important, but it's also important that we include other women. And so when I first started writing my book of poetry, I realized that I was kind of replicating that habit of the media to just keep telling those stories. And so I had to really like actually step back for quite a while and say like, who am I representing whose stories are not getting heard and how do I make a change myself to change that? Right. And so, you know, as we move forward with like telling the stories from the, the collection of poetry, we also are, are working on like new podcast episodes. It's really intentional to make sure that like women collectively are getting their stories heard. So we try to be really intentional about making sure that those stories that just weren't making sensational headlines or didn't get that kind of coverage, like how do we tell those stories? And that also complicates things because sometimes there's just not a lot of information about them because they weren't covered in the first place. Wonderful
1: segue. I was just going to say that. And that is so true. You want to cover the story because it hasn't been covered enough. And then you go and you look back and the history of this coverage of this case and you go, well, crap, they didn't cover the case. They gave it one write up.
0: Mm -hmm. They found
1: the bodies. No follow up ever.
0: Exactly. So like we have an upcoming story about this woman who went missing from Wisconsin in the 1970s, Nahida Khatib. And if I had just gone by what was in the newspaper about her, we would have had the shortest podcast ever. so we had to like do a, a records request and so like I am reading like through her her you know the police notes
1: which is always interesting to see the different perspectives from the authorities during an investigation right and you don't always get that opportunity. So good job on on getting your hands on that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wasn't certain they were going to send it to us, but they like sent it to us by the next day. I was like, yes. <laughs> did
1: you do a FOIA request? Is that how you got?
0: Yeah. Yeah. They sent it so fast too. Good. And they're, they're like, she's kind of famous around here. Cause it's like a suburb of Milwaukee. Right.
1: Again, there's reasons why some of these stories get more coverage than others. Some happen in mm-hmm. shadier parts of town. Some happen in Boulder, <laughs> you know? Right. And that's like a super tight knit community. And, I've been by John Bene's house. It's literally a neighborhood, just like any neighborhood you see in America. Mm-hmm. Granted, it's in Boulder, and her—it's a big, nice house, but it's not this giant McMansion of right. what people think right. of when they think of her case. Because they only show like certain angles of the house, but once you realize this was a neighborhood, and there's a reason why everybody is covering this case because somebody just took this girl, she did this tour. Of course, Boulder's going to yeah. be all over that. Denver News is going to be all over that. Denver's the center of the country, and then boom, it just goes out everywhere. And it, then the whole the home videos again. It's about having material. So continue on with what you were saying about the.
0: Oh, yeah. So for her story, right? Like she she is not covered. In the newspaper, I think largely because she came from like an immigrant community. So there's like a Middle Eastern immigrant community and nobody was talking. You can read these police files where it's like no one wants to say what they know. Right. You know, there's a few people who are like, I will talk. But under like the knowledge that you will never reveal that I said this thing. You know. And, you know, the newspapers don't have this story at all because they, they didn't have access to that information. So, you know, for her, you know, she could have been one of those forgotten stories that we've heard nothing about and, and we didn't get that kind of coverage for her. So like, I'm hoping that, you know, with She Goes By Jane, we're just kind of bringing original stories that like have kind of just been lost in a lot of ways. So we, we have like a combination of like, you know, Brianna or Gurley, two whose stories were covered quite a bit. And then we also have, you know, like Nahita's story, which hasn't been heard.
1: Like you mentioned earlier, you do have to tell those stories the John Bonnet's, the Gabby's. Those are stories that need to be told. Uh, the Christopher Watts, these cases are important to be told. It's just really difficult to get the story across when you don't have all the information. And then you, when you have somebody that does have all these pictures and videos and like Gabby's case, for example, they had police body cam footage. They had text messages. They had different things that they could kind of speculate. And then all the web sleuths, which is a whole nother thing that I don't necessarily, it's great, It's great. I mean, people have their own opinions about true crime podcasting. It's some people hate it. Some people love it. And that's always going to be the case. But the bottom line of these cases that we cover is that we are trying to shine a light on the other cases. Do we have to cover these popular cases, the ones that do make it into the zeitgeist? Yes, because those are also important stories to be told. Can't just ignore them. But I feel it's important to focus on the cases that just don't get the the coverage that they deserve. And that's always been my mentality is cover the cases where people have lost interest because of the fact that there isn't a family to stand behind them and say, my daughter is missing. My daughter is missing. I want answers. It's John Walsh. 101. You are the number right. one proponent of your victim or your child's death. You need to be front and center and put yourself out there. And you see that a lot in the late 80s. You see that a lot in the 90s. You see that all the way up until today. But again, with some of these cases where we have drugs, we have abuse in a lot of these cases, which is what leads them into certain professions. The families aren't into talking. They aren't capable of composing themselves. Maybe they have drug issues themselves. Maybe they're partly guilty because they sexually abused one of the victims. And they feel maybe they're responsible for putting them in that position where they put themselves in sex work. And then now they're a a homicide victim. And I think that could be one of the reasons why we don't get enough Information about those cases, but I do really think it boils down to the news directors and the news, and what makes for a gripping story. Is it the drug addict sex worker that was found in an alley, or is it the girl who was taken from the bus stop?
0: Yeah, you know we have a episode coming up shortly about um, this young girl Teresa Beer. Like, so it, it checks like some of those boxes. She's young, she's white, you know, she's living in California. There is also a sensational aspect to her case in which she goes hiking with a man who's 43 years old and she's 16 and he comes back alone. And he says he last saw her with Bigfoot, like literally that's his story. That Bigfoot has abducted this teenage girl. This
1: wasn't in Colorado, was it? Because there was a video that just came out this week that's uh, supposedly showing <laughs> Bigfoot from a train. I'm highly skeptical, but you know.
0: <laughs> Apparently, like the Bigfoot ecosystem, like the habitat spreads over to this is in california and so like i just think like this oh this the had, cali like, all of the bigfoot markings.
1: oh okay we're talking about Cali yes, as
0: opposed to the colorado oh, okay.
1: okay bigfoot yeah, yeah. okay good good so we got well, more right. straight on that okay right. so big bigfoot takes think, the like,
0: girl bigfoot takes the girl and i just think like oh okay so this is a story that like at the time should have been all over newspapers right because like It checks a lot of those boxes like we would have just like, you know, expected. But the fact is, she she didn't have a family advocate like her. She was living with like a half uncle. She'd been in and out of foster care. And so there was no voice at the time to like stand up and say like, like that my sister is missing. My daughter is missing. my, My child is missing. And so it ends up getting forgotten and her story just isn't covered very much. And I just think like, like, yeah, you're right. Like who is telling the story? Who, who who's capable of pushing that story out there? Is there a way that as kind of true crime podcasters and telling these stories that we can advocate in a way that's like meaningful to tell these stories in a way that's like, not just like for like listens, right? Like I, I am cognizant of the fact that like the Bigfoot angle is sensational, but I also think there's still a 16-year-old girl who went hiking with a 43-year-old man, and she is
1: missing. 27-year age difference, 16 years old. There's definitely smoke there. I mean, that's red flags all day long. Right. Why didn't that get the coverage? Like you mentioned, though, it was a broken home. Uh, just not enough people to rally behind the, the name, the the victim, and it's sad to think that there are so many families like that across the country that either have become disassociated with their child. And so they don't have really anything to say or they're embarrassed because they have become disassociated with their child. I think that takes a lot of guts for a parent who has been disassociated to come out and say, I am looking for my daughter. She is, gone into this she's been missing and great. we've not had a great relationship but I really want to find my daughter. I give a lot of credit to those people because those people have to own up to their own mistakes when they do come forward and admit to doing something that they didn't feel like maybe they were the best at being a mom or dad and and I think guilt and shame hide a lot of these cases from the public eye.
0: Yeah, I mean I think like, you know, with Marcia King, who was identified, you know, after being unidentified for like, what, like 37 years. So she's unidentified. And then her family, like before her family can like even say anything, they're like, why was she never reported missing? Like, like people are falling in on like accusing the family of like not caring about her. And so like, you know, that's not the truth. The truth is the family very much did care about her. They had tried to report her missing, but she was an adult. You know, like, I think we're so, we're also just so quick to fall in on people. Like, you know, I think the internet, of course, has exasperated that, but that kind of like critical look at like everyone and kind of like suspecting that people don't care just because they might have had some issues in the past or like things you know, they didn't do the thing that you think you would have done. And I just think like if we offered a little bit more grace to people that that would facilitate some of this coming forward and speaking up.
1: I think the the key there is to just not blame. Don't play the blame game. It's nobody's fault. Right. The situation is where it is. The way to get towards some sort of resolution is to step forward Your bad deeds, misdeeds, whatever, may have nothing to do with this case, but step forward and stand up for your daughter and say, hey, this is who she was, and I'm fighting for her. Right, right. And on that note, that's basically the whole goal of your show, right?
0: That is right, that we're out here trying to shine light on these stories and you know, hopefully that the angle of the poem at the end, like that, that leaves you with like a moment of contemplation about the person that we're talking about, that it's not, we're not telling these stories for sensationalism or, or, you know, clicks or whatever. We're out here trying to make sure that we're honoring these women and their stories in some way.
1: And I think it's awesome. I think it's really right up my alley as far as shows that I'm interested in and, and the cases that don't get the proper attention from the local media, the national media, and where can people find your show?
0: We are, of course, on Evergreen and Killer um, podcasts, and we are just available wherever you get your podcasts. So we are placed everywhere. And um, we also have our website, shegoesbyjanepodcast.com
1: Awesome. Awesome. And uh, what would uh, be the next uh, big case that somebody should listen for? that you got coming.
0: So coming up is that, that Teresa beer story about that includes the Bigfoot angle and the Nahita story that, you know um, we're going to have Kathy and Jimmy of Hocus Pocus fame, um, reading her for her. And, you know, we've got a few others up our sleeve, like, uh, you know, a Annie and, Virginia picked 2 Noise. So we've got a lot coming up. And so hopefully we can just keep telling these stories.
1: So you're going to have this as an ongoing series where you're going to continue to tell different stories each and every week.
0: Yeah. So we are committed to telling these stories. And so we are going to be bringing them to you weekly
1: that is awesome well i think you have done an incredible job so far and i think it's really great to have you on the evergreen team proud to be a team member with you and again thanks so much for joining me today and taking time out of your schedule
0: and thank you for having me
1: you bet check out her podcast she goes by jane wherever you get your favorite shows and uh, thank you guys so much for listening Thank you so much to Amy Baker, the host, co-host of She Goes by Jane. And again, that can be found wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I really enjoyed my conversation with Amy today, and I hope you guys did as well. As you know, I do drop new shows every Friday, and I've been throwing in some interesting press conferences that have come up along the way, and it just keeps you engaged in the world of... Law and & Order. And again, you can follow me on Twitter at Huffman 3 If you want to donate to the show, you can do so via Venmo at Bill-Huffman-3. And as always, until next time, stay healthy and be safe. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?